Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you again. As James says, it was two years ago that we were here last, and uh, it is a joy to be back with you, this body. Uh, we were talking on the way down here on the plane. Julie and I, we were saying, well, we can't wait to get down there and see friends and see old acquaintances. And I asked her, aren't you excited about seeing some of our old friends down there? And she said, yeah, but I can't wait to get to CBC. I can't wait to get to Cornerstone Bible and be with the shins and be with this body again. So that is our heart. You, your, your body is very close and dear to ours. And as James says, your body is knit very closely with ours up at Faith Bible Church. And it is a joy to, to be with you and to share this morning with you. Uh, Marcus and Amy are here, as you know, from Spokane. And so uh, you've got to take good care of them, okay? Uh, we're a little jealous that you get to have them now. And so... Um, uh, just take good care of them. We love them, and I know you'll be encouraged by their ministry here. But uh, we love this body. We love being with you. And uh, the, the elders at Faith Bible Church send their greeting. They uh, said to say hi and to thank you for the ministry that you're having here in this community. And so it's a joy and a pleasure to be with you this morning. I invite you again to open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1. You ever notice that perspective makes all the difference? How you look at something really changes or determines how you view that situation. Thomas Wheeler, a chief executive officer of Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company, tells a story about he and his wife as they were traveling down the highway one day. They noticed that their car was getting a little low on gas, and so he decided it was time to pull off the highway and get uh, some gas for the car. And so he did that. He pulled off and found himself at a old dilapidated gas station with one pump and he pulled up there and the attendant came out and asked him to fill up his car with gas and Mr. Wheeler then went out for a little walk around the gas station to kind of stretch his legs and he came back and he saw his wife and this attendant engaged in a fairly animated conversation and as he approached them they stopped talking and he paid the attendant for the gas and got back into the car and as they were getting in He heard his wife say to him, it was great talking to you again. And they got in the car and began going away. And he asked his wife, honey, uh, did you you know that man? And um, she admitted that she did. In fact, they went to high school together. In fact, they had even dated together in high school. And he kind of paused and looked and said, well, boy, were you lucky that I came along. If you had married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant instead of the wife of a chief executive officer. And she paused and looked back at him and said, My dear, if I'd married him, he'd be the chief executive officer and you'd be the gas station attendant. (laughs) Perspective. How you look at something changes everything about that situation, doesn't it? How we view a situation or how we approach a situation really affects how we respond to that. You know, why is it that one person can look at a a job or their work as a frustration, and another person in the same office can view it as a great, great sense of joy. It's about perspective. Why is it that one person, when they approach school or they think about school, they view it as a burden, and others, they approach it as a joy and a delight? It's really about perspective. Remember David and Goliath? When Goliath came against the Israelites, the soldiers all looked at him and thought, he's so big, we can never kill him. What did David do? He looked and said, he's so big, I can't miss him. Right? It's perspective. It's how we view the situation. So perspective makes all the difference. And for the Christian who is enduring trials and hardships and difficulties, perspective makes all the difference. 
You know, why is it that some Christians seem to handle trials so well? They breeze through them and they learn what God would have them learn. And then there are other Christians who kick against that and they fight against those things that God is trying to teach them. It's about perspective. And in the book of 1 Peter, Peter writes to a group of people who needed to have the right perspective on their trials. This group of people needed to think rightly about the situation that they were in because they were facing some significant trials. They were facing some significant hardships as Christians, as believers who were scattered through persecution. They were facing and enduring intense trials and hardships and suffering. And so Peter wrote this letter, this this first epistle of Peter that we have in our scriptures. He wrote to encourage them, to give them hope in the midst of suffering, to get their eyes off their present circumstances and lift their eyes and their sight to the glorious wonder of the cross and salvation. I invite you just to look with me at chapter 1. Just a few of these verses that kind of lead up and set the context for the passage that we're going to view this morning. Verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is talking about all the incredible blessings that we possess as those who are saved and who have been received the inheritance that God has granted to us. Verse 4, he said that we have been given an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Verse 5 says we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's why in verse 6 he says we can greatly rejoice. Even though we're distressed by trials and difficulties come in our life, we can still rejoice because of this incredible salvation that God has granted to us. He says that trials and hardships and difficulties result in the proof of our faith, verse 7. He says that it results in it being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. And verse 9 says, the outcome of this faith is the salvation of our souls. And so what Peter's doing in this first chapter of 1 Peter is he's trying to get our eyes off of our present circumstances and onto the greatness of Christ and the glory of God and the wonder of our salvation in the cross. And this morning, as we come to verses 10 to 12, I believe that our hearts are going to be encouraged as we see this wonderful salvation that you and I possess this morning. That we're going to get a little window into the glorious wonder of salvation that you and I possess. And we should come away this morning with a deep appreciation for salvation and what Christ has done in our life. And that should be the perspective that orients our thinking in the midst of these difficult trials. This is a reminder that we need often, isn't it? Life tends to throw us those curveballs and we wonder, God, what are you doing? God, how is this going to work out for my good and for your glory? And those trials and those difficulties tend to cloud our perspective and distort our vision and keep us from thinking rightly about this situation that God has placed us in. And it's easy for us to lose sight of the glorious wonder of the cross. And so I wonder this morning, are you in some trials? Are there some hardships in your life right now that have possibly distorted your perspective? That have caused you to lose hope in the circumstances that you're in and that you've no longer, you're no longer amazed at the glorious salvation that God has granted to you?
Maybe some of you here this morning are facing the, the reality of failing health and some of the struggles that come with that. Maybe some of you have lost a, a loved one or someone close to you recently. Maybe if you're single, you're, the desire for a family and marriage is overwhelming and it's burdening you. Maybe if you're a parent here this morning, the, the weight of training your child is overwhelming and you're thinking, how do I handle this? How do I have a right perspective in these circumstances? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, we're going to see two wonderful perspectives on this glorious salvation. Let me just read those. I know James read those before, but let me read them again. Verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I have to confess to you, when I first was given this passage to preach up in Spokane, we kind of had a team approach when we went through the book of First Peter and and a uh, few of us took these verses, and some of us took these verses, and others of us took these verses, and they were, I was given this passage, and I thought, great, thanks a lot. I'm the new guy, you're just going to give me the passage that no one else wants to preach. But I have to confess, when I got into these verses, there is a treasure. There is a wealth of information here and perspective that helps us have the right perspective in the midst of trials. And so this morning... Let's talk about two perspectives of our glorious salvation that help us have the right perspective in trials. We're going to look at the perspective of the prophets and the perspective of the angels. Okay, so let's look first, number one, at the perplexity of the prophets. The perplexity of the prophets is the first perspective that should orient our thinking in the midst of our trials. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. This is the dry, boring Old Testament stuff, it's that stuff way back in the Old Testament where I don't even know what they're talking about. Well, that may be true, but there's still some incredible stuff here on the prophets and their perplexity that should give us the right perspective. So let's look, first letter A, the prophet's ministry. The prophet's ministry, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Stop right there. Peter here is referring to Old Testament prophets. Men in the Old Testament who, who spoke on behalf of God. Men who were the vehicles and the, the, the way in which God spoke to His people in that time. In Luke 1, verse 70, it describes the function of these prophets. It says, speaking of God, it says that He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. That's what these men were. These men were mouthpieces. They were the vehicle by which God's truth came to the people of God. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, these men of old who prophesied on behalf of God of His revelation to His people. And it says here in verse 10 that these men prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now, time out. Some people say, Todd, you don't get any grace until you get to the, Old, the New Testament. The Old Testament is all law, right? And it's not until you get to the New Testament that's grace. That's not true. 
The Old Testament is full of grace. The Old Testament is full of a God who is gracious. In fact, if you look at some of the verses listed in your outline, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 84, 11, says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. So grace was all over the Old Testament. And these prophets spoke of grace even in the Old Testament. But what Peter's referring to here is a grace that would come in the New Testament. A grace that is far greater than any grace known in the Old Testament. These prophets spoke of a time, spoken of now here in the New Testament, the day in which you and I live, a time of new covenant blessings, a time when God's grace is poured out on His people through His Son, the Messiah. And as we look in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of prophecies of this wonderful grace that you and I experience. Just a couple quick examples. Genesis 3.15. This text is known as the Proto-Euangelion. It's a fancy word for saying the first gospel. This is the first place in all of scriptures that the gospel is referred to. The gospel is mentioned. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's God's curse upon Satan. And in that curse, God is indicating for us the gospel. He's saying that the seed of Eve, Christ, will come, and he will be bruised on the heel by Satan, but he in turn will bruise Satan on the head, meaning he will be destroyed. It's the first mention of the gospel. Genesis 12, verse 3, says, speaking of Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of the Abrahamic covenant there, he's speaking that in Abraham and through Abraham, all the families of the world would be blessed. And in Galatians 3, 8, we know that we as New Testament saints are children of Abraham. Isaiah eleven ten speaks of the root of Jesse who will come, the son of Jesse, Christ, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, speaks of a time when God will write His law upon their heart, and they will be His people, and He will be their God. So the Old Testament is filled with references to this grace that would come, this time of Messiah, this time of salvation poured out on God's people. That's what the prophets spoke about. They anticipated that time. They anticipated the time when God's grace and mercy would be poured out on His people. And here's the point. What's the point? It's ours today. It's ours today. We possess that grace that the prophets, the men of old, way back long ago prophesied about. It's ours today. The salvation that they anticipated is the salvation you and I experience. And so we have this morning a perspective when it comes to our trials and difficulties. That the very prophecies that the men of old spoke about concerning our salvation is what you and I experience. It should cause us to have a right perspective. Yes, the trials are difficult. Yes, the pain is real. Yes, the difficulty is there. And yet, we possess the very grace that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. That's the prophet's ministry. But also, from these men, we also learn about their search. Letter B, the prophet's search helps us have a right perspective in the midst of these trials. Verses 10 and 11. It says that these men, these 
prophets made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Kind of interesting. How much did the prophets know about what they were writing? Well, here we get a little window into what the prophets knew and what the prophets didn't know. Peter indicates here that the the prophets couldn't understand and didn't understand all the details of the prophecies that they were speaking about. They were speaking these prophecies as revealed to them by the Spirit of God. And it says that these men studied and examined their own prophecies to try and understand the things and the time and the circumstances that God was indicating in them and through them. He says in verse 10 that these, verse 11 rather, uh, verse 10, that they were made careful search and inquiry. These two words refer to something or someone who examines something very closely. Someone who scrutinizes something very carefully. Someone who searches something diligently and thoroughly and tries to understand something. Kind of like our little boys. You saw them roll in this morning in their stroller. You know, they're 14 months and when we take them outside, they do exactly this. They pick up everything and they look at everything and the worms go in their mouth and they taste and they examine. You know, they, they're examining everything that goes in their mouth and everything that's around them. And they pick it up and bark and snails and it all goes in their mouth. And they're examining these things. They're trying to see what these things are and they're learning. And that's kind of the picture here. These prophets were examining. They were ser- searching thoroughly the prophecies that God had given them. It says in verse 11 that these men were carried along by the Spirit of Christ. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men did not just make up their prophecies. These men did not just try and come up with something on their own and ask God to bless it. These men were speaking on behalf of Christ. These men were led by the Spirit of God to, to say what they said and speak what they spoke. In Second Peter 1, the very next book of Peter Verses 20, 20 and 21 of chapter 1, it says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so these men were, these men were led by the Spirit. And as they were speaking these prophecies, they were speaking the very things that God would have them speak. And in verse 11, it says, They were puzzled. They were seeking and trying to understand and know the person or the time that they were speaking about. Now, how many of you have an NASB? Just raise your hands. New American Standard, okay? Um, Of course, that is the Bible that we use as well. We know that's the version that Paul used, the the approved version. But you'll be sad to learn here that um, there's a better translation in the NIV. I know that may be sad for you to hear some of you, but uh, the better translation is not that they were seeking the person or the time, it's that they were seeking the time and the circumstances. That's a better rendering of that phrase in verse 11, seeking to know what person or time. They knew the person. When these prophets were prophesying about this grace and the Messiah, they knew who they were talking about. They knew that they were speaking of the Messiah, the one who would come one day and bring God's grace to His people. They knew that, and we'll see that in a minute. What they didn't know was the time. They didn't know the circumstances. They didn't know when or the circumstances surrounding His coming. And so they were trying to find out the timing 
and the circumstances. They wanted to know the circumstances around His coming. They wanted to know when this grace would come. They wanted to know when this Messiah would be here. And that's pretty typical of prophecies, isn't it? Not knowing the timing of when these things would occur. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 speaks of a time and it will not fail. It hastens toward the goal even though for the appointed time it's not known. In Matthew 24 verse 3 it says, And Christ was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And so it's typical of prophecy not to know the timing or the circumstances around when those things were coming. And so these prophets, they searched and they examined and they tried to diligently search out and know the circumstances about when this would take place. But they didn't know. It's like they had the, some of the pieces of the puzzle, but not all of them. You ever do one of those 5,000 piece puzzles? You know, and all those pieces look alike. And you look at that top of that picture and you try and get these things to fit together and it takes like eight years to try and get this puzzle to go together, right? Well, the prophets didn't even have all the pieces. They didn't even have a picture to look at. They didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle and they were trying to figure out the timing of this and the circumstances surrounding this period of grace in which Christ was going to bring in. But they never saw it. Matthew thirteen seventeen speaks of the group of people who did not know that. They prophesied about these things, but they were not aware of the timing and the events of when it would take place. What's the point? See, Ty, why do you go all through all this stuff? Why do you go back to the Old Testament and take us back to the prophets? Why was Peter going back to the prophets? It's because he was trying to encourage his people. He was trying to encourage the people to whom he was writing to give them a proper perspective in the midst of their trials. I mean, think about this. The, the people that Peter was writing to were facing persecution, suffering, trials, hardships, difficulties. They were scattered because of their faith. And Peter writes to them and he says, salvation you possess was what the prophets of old longed to see and they longed to understand and they longed to experience the joy and the grace that you're experiencing. And you possess it. You have it. And so this should have the proper perspective. This should create the proper perspective in your mind that as you go through these trials and you go through these hardships, Remember, the salvation and grace that was once prophesied in the Old Testament has now come to you. That should give us hope in the midst of difficult circumstances and trials. You know, sometimes we look back in the Old Testament. These men like Moses and Abraham and Isaiah, we look back on some of these men and we think, man, I wish I could be like them. Man, I wish I could just experience what they experienced. I wish I could just see what they saw. I wish I could just be there for the, the things that they experienced and witnessed. Then I would really walk with God. Then I would really trust the Lord in these trials. Then I would really experience intimacy with the Lord. You know what? Peter takes the nostalgia out of that thinking. He takes the nostalgia out of that thinking and says, We have so much more than they. We have so much more than what they had ever experienced. We have the very grace that they prophesied about and we get to experience it. The salvation that they once longed to understand and longed to see through the Messiah is what you and I experience today. So we have it so much better than the Old Testament prophets. 
We have it so much better than what they could have ever experienced because we possess the grace that they longed to experience and to see. Do you recognize your glorious salvation? Does the wonder of the cross and the grace through Christ, does that give you hope in the midst of your trials? As you're going through those difficult times right now in life and you wake up tomorrow morning and that trial is still there, will you say, yes, but the grace of Christ has transformed my life and I have the salvation that was prophesied and looked forward to for many centuries. It's mine. So the perplexity of the prophets is seen in the prophet's ministry. It's seen in the prophet's search. Also, let her see it's shown in their message. Let her see as the prophet's message. Verse 11 says that they predicted, that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The message of the prophets tells us as well that Part of their perplexity was trying to understand how the prophecies all fit together. See, the message of the prophets was one of suffering, but also one of grace and glory. There were many prophecies in the Old Testament that involved suffering, Messiah, and there were also many prophecies in the Old Testament that involved the glory of the Messiah. And they didn't know how all this fit together. They didn't know how this all came together in one person, the Messiah, and so they're trying to figure out all these things. On the one hand, there were many references to the Messiah's suffering. There's a few verses listed in your outline. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which when we come to the New Testament, we know is Christ's cry on the cross of suffering. Isaiah verses, uh, chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. And so there were these prophecies in the Old Testament anticipating a suffering Messiah. A Messiah who would come and be pierced through for our transgressions. So they saw these prophecies, but they also saw these prophecies of glory. God spoke through them and spoke to them of a time of glory that would come from the Messiah. Jeremiah 33 says that God will cause a, a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. It's a time of glory when Christ will rule and reign on His kingdom. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 says, To Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And so there are prophecies of glory as well. And so these prophets saw these prophecies of suffering and prophecies of glory and they tried to fit them together. In fact, we know even after Christ's death and resurrection, there was still confusion, wasn't there? Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember two men were walking along the road and Christ came with them and walked with them and they did not recognize Him? And he began to explain from all the prophets all that they had seen and experienced. 
And in Luke 24, verses 26 and 27, he says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? See, the message of the prophets was one of suffering and one of glory as well. And so they searched and they sought to understand how would this all work? How would this all fit together? And listen, they got an answer. And it wasn't the answer they were anticipating. Look at verse 12. Letter D, the prophet's audience. Here's the answer. They wanted to know. They wanted to know how all this would fit together and how it would happen. And they got their answer. Letter D, number 4, the prophet's audience. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. But you and these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They got an answer. They got an answer to their questions about how all this would work and how all this would happen. And verse 12 says they were speaking to another age, another generation. It says that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us. They were speaking to us, to those who received New Testament grace, to those who received the joy and the benefits of the Messiah and His death and His burial and His resurrection. They were told that the reward for their labors was that they were serving a later crowd, a later group of people. And so they wrote and spoke of a grace that was actually reached far beyond their audience of their day. Basically what the prophets did They spread a table in which you and I get to partake from. They spread a table in which they would not partake of and they spread a table for food for all of us to enjoy. Someone in England tells a story of watching at one night uh, at dusk a lamp lighter going from one light to another lighting the lamps. And that day the lamps had to be lit by, by hand, by fire. This man was blind. And he went from one lamp to another, lighting the lamp with a light that he himself would never see. That's exactly what the prophets were like. The prophets of old spoke of a grace that would come at the time of Messiah, and the time of Christ, and the time of the church. But they themselves would never truly experience all the benefits and all the joys of that. But in verse 12, look what it says. It says, they spoke to an age in which those things which have been announced to you came to those of you who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You and I received that gospel. When when Christ came into our heart, when Christ changed our life, when someone shared the gospel with you and you submitted your life to the gospel in Christ, we are the recipient of that grace that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So what's the point? The point is this should be a huge encouragement to our hearts. This should stir our hearts to love and affection for Christ in the midst of trials, in the midst of some difficult circumstances. As you're going through those hard times and difficulties and trials, we need to be reminded of the fact that we experience the very salvation that those in the Old Testament longed to see and longed to understand. Does it evoke in a sense of wonder from you? Does it evoke from you a sense of amazement and anticipation and excitement over what the Lord has graced you with in the gospel? It should. 
It should heighten our sense and value and appreciation of our salvation. It should cause us to wonder with amazement at the gospel and the cross. And it should cause us to make much of God in the midst of difficult trials and circumstances. Can I ask you this morning what trial you're facing? What hardship? What suffering are you going through this morning? What difficulty? What hardship? What issue are you struggling with this morning? Peter wants you to be encouraged by your salvation. Peter wants you to be encouraged and amazed at the wonder of the cross and the glory of salvation. And that we would never treat it flippantly. Oh, that we would never tread on the grace of the cross. Oh, that we would never tread and take it flippantly at what Christ has done in us and through us. Are you amazed? Are you amazed at the cross? Are you amazed at the wonder of the salvation that was anticipated in the Old Testament? And that tomorrow morning when we wake up, we can experience that and know that it is ours, that we possess it. And that should cause us to have the proper perspective in the midst of difficult trials. So the perplexity of the prophets gives us one perspective on how we can have the right perspective in trials. Let me give you one more from the last part of verse 12. It's called the curiosity of the angels. The prophets give us a right perspective, but so too do the angels. The curiosity of the angels should be that which causes us to have the right perspective in the midst of our trials. Look at verse 12, the end. It says, things into which angels long to look. I love that phrase, don't you? I love that phrase. What does that mean? That angels long to look into something. They long to understand something. What does that mean? The word long actually means to lust after, to crave after, to yearn for, or to have an intense desire for something. It's not just an idle curiosity about something. It is an intense craving to understand or to look into something. And it says in verse 12 that these angels long to look. The word parakupto in the Greek, it means to stoop over or to bend to see something. Literally means to contort your body to try and get a better perspective and to look at something. Same word is used in John chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. It says the two were running together, speaking of Peter and John when they went to see the tomb says, the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And it says, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He stooped. He contorted his body to try and look in there and perceive and understand. And Peter uses the same term in a figurative sense here to convey what the angels do when they try and understand the glory of our salvation. You've all done something like that before, haven't you? You wanted to see something, so you crane your neck. You try and contort your body and try and get a better perspective of that thing you're trying to see. Our kids do this all the time. They sit in their high chairs and they like turn their heads like totally around. It's like scary. Like, how do you do that? They're trying to see something. They're trying to contort their body to try and perceive what they're trying to look at. And Peter says, that's what the angels are doing. That's what they're doing with our salvation. They're trying to comprehend the glory and the wonder of our salvation. And so they look carefully and they study and they examine and they try and understand the glory of salvation. Someone put it this way in a song. 
They said, holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Guys, this is an incredible truth. That angels are just spectators in salvation. They can't relate to it. They cannot fathom the wonder and the glory of our salvation. No evil angel has ever been delivered from sin. No evil angel has ever been redeemed. They cannot fathom the glory and the wonder of salvation. They're simply spectators. They simply are looking at it from a distance, trying to understand how those who were once dead in sin and now alive in Christ, how can that be? It's amazing when you think about the fact of who angels are. Angels have access to the presence of God. Direct access to the presence of God. Angels serve God and praise God and worship God. Angels are, were joining in praise when the heavens and the earth were created. Angels were involved in the, the giving of the Mosaic Law. Angels helped in winning people to Christ. They announced Christ's birth. They ministered to Christ after His temptation. Think about all the things that angels do. But with all their privileges, all their knowledge, they don't experience salvation. They can't fathom it. And angels who know so much more about heaven and God's glory than any of us cannot fathom salvation. They cannot understand how those who were once dead in sin, destined for hell, apart from Christ, heading to a Christless eternity and eternal torment, how they could be taken from death to life, from hell to heaven. They can't fathom that. How they could now be declared righteous and alive to God and in relationship and communion with Him. That thought totally escapes their thinking. And that's how glorious our salvation is. That's how wonderful the cross is. That's how glorious it is to wake up today and tomorrow and to say, my sins are forgiven. You know what happens in heaven when someone is saved? What does Luke 15 say about what the angels do? They sing praises to our God. There's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Just a footnote. You want to help to make the courts of heaven ring? You want to help make the joy of heaven sound through all of the universe? Help people come to Christ. Because the joy of the angels resounds in heaven as they stand in awe of our salvation. We have a song that angels can't sing. And so in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hardships and persecutions. This should be a perspective that helps us keep the right perspective in trials. It should cause us to to stand in awe of the fact that though we were once dead, yes, we're in the midst of trials, but we're alive to Christ. And so what Peter's doing is trying to get his readers to have the right perspective. And I wonder this morning, do you? Do you have the right perspective? You know, you can't control the wind, but you can set your sail to make the boat go in a certain direction. It's true in trials as well. You cannot control trials, but you can respond with the right perspective and a right attitude towards those trials. And what Peter's done in these verses is try and give us the hope 
that should encourage our hearts in the midst of such difficult times. So can I give you just a few things as we close to try and wrap up some very specific application from a message like this. Number one, face your trials with hope. Face your trials with hope. For as Christians, we don't have to mope. We can hope, right? We can hope because we have the glorious salvation. Calvin once said, all these things tend to show us one thing, that Christians ought to surmount all the obstacles in the world. What is there which this incomparable benefit does not reduce to nothing? Guys, when we go through life and we face those difficult trials and those hardships that life throws our way and God allows to come into our life, we can have the right perspective by saying, yeah, that's hard, but I'm saved. And the salvation that I possess was once prophesied in the Old Testament and brought to me today through the Gospel. And I can rejoice. We can hope. Secondly, number two, embrace your salvation with wonder. Ask your heart this morning, as I had to ask my heart, have I become numb to the wonder of salvation? Have I in any way taken for granted the cross of Christ? Have I in any way trampled on it by not taking it for what it truly is and taking it for granted and not rejoicing in the glorious splendor and the wonder and the greatness of our salvation? And can I challenge you, next time a trial hits, to go to a passage like this that will reorient your thinking and you'll help you embrace your salvation with wonder. Can I ask you this morning, have you taken for granted your own salvation? Have you in any way taken for granted the fact that we were once dead and that Christ has radically transformed us from the inside out and that should give us a proper perspective in the midst of our trials? Number three, finally, submit your life to Christ. If you're here today and you've never truly experienced that we, the, the salvation that we've just talked about, that salvation that was prophesied in the Old Testament in which angels long to understand and see, and I invite you today to submit your life to Christ and let Christ come in you and transform you and change you from the inside out. He will exchange your sin for His righteousness if you repent and trust Him and believe Him. A couple of years ago, we heard the story of Jim Bowers, a missionary pilot. He and his wife were in the Peruvian jungles And we know the story that their plane was shot down by a Peruvian Air Force fighter, mistaking them for a drug plane. As that plane raked their plane with gunfire, his wife and seven-month-old daughter were immediately killed. Jim and his son, Corey, survived the incident. And a few months later, in an interview, he was asked, how is he dealing with the situation? He said this, quote, I'm trusting that God's in control. The bottom line is God knew what He was doing. He has been in control of this whole situation. I am resting happily and confidently in God's promise that Ronnie and Charity are fine in His presence. In fact, it has been thrilling to contemplate just how awesome their days must be now. We don't need to be feeling sorry for them. Was the pain real? Sure. Was the trial hard? Absolutely. Was it difficult? Sure. But he had the right perspective. He remembered the glorious wonder of salvation and all the joyous benefits that come with it. I ask you to ask yourself the question this morning, do you and do I?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a wonderful reminder